Thank you, Mike. It's a tough world we're living in. As you say, lots to pray for. Good morning, everybody. I suspect, like many of you, uh, as during COVID, you've been able to spend a bit more time reading the scriptures and uh, spending time alone because we haven't been able to get out very much. Um, a few years ago, I read my way through the whole of the Bible from beginning to end, from Genesis and the Garden of Eden to Noah and the flood, from Abraham, Moses, and Joshua through Gideon and Ruth, and on to David and Solomon, the fall of Jerusalem, Israel's exile into Babylon. And stories about Nebuchadnezzar and Xerxes, Esther and Daniel, Job and the great prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah and Ezekiel. And then the turning point, the New Testament and the Gospels, which start with John preparing the way and with Jesus' baptism and temptation, establishing his identity and his purpose. And then after John is put into prison, Jesus calls the disciples to him and the people gather in ever larger numbers. The disciples are overwhelmed and Jesus has to teach them what faith really looks like. Feeding the 5,000, walking on the water, teaching with great authority, driving out evil spirits, healing many, even raising the dead. And then suddenly the mood begins to change. Enemy, voice, enemy forces start to gather around and challenge him. Telling the disciples that he will be rejected and killed, he enters Jerusalem to wide acclaim today on Palm Sunday to confront the elders, the chief priests, the teachers of the law on their home turf in the heart of the city. Challenging the authority of the temple system and its leadership, he proclaims that the temple was to be a house of prayer for all nations, but that the religious leaders had made it a den of thieves. He exposes the corruption of the temple tax, the dishonesty and scandalous monetary exchange rates for those who sold animals for sacrifice. And having turned over the tables and driven out the money changers and the sellers from the temple area, he begins to openly teach truth. And in response, the Jewish authorities arrange for his arrest, his trial and his crucifixion. Although Paul's conversion, his letters, and the grand finale in the book of Revelations all follow, it is this Easter story that is the absolute center of gravity of not just the Gospels, but the whole of Scripture. Over 30% of Matthew's Gospel, 25% of Mark's, 20% of Luke's, and over 40% of John's Gospel is dedicated to this week that we are about to enter Collectively, they're saying that the most important part of everything that they have written about Jesus is revealed in this, the last week of his life. A week which separates Christianity out from every other religion. And the words that describe it display a litany of emotions, ranging from cries of Hosanna to those of confrontation, betrayal, denial, trial, scourging, crucifixion, and the tomb all followed by that most electrifying sentence that has ever been heard. He is not here. He is risen. It was Passover time, and the city was jammed with pilgrims from all over the world. 
and an event recorded by all four Gospels, Jesus enters Jerusalem in apparent triumph. Until then, he had studiously avoided public acclaim and publicity, withdrawing as much as possible from public notice, spending time in the wilderness alone and not courting attention. He often tells those that he heals not to say anything about it and the disciples that they are not to say to anyone that he is the Christ. But the week that starts in triumph goes on to demonstrate the fickle nature of the voice of the people. The days that follow the shouts of praise reveal the abyss of denial and betrayal. The duplicity of Judas, the unfaithfulness of Peter, the ambivalence of Pilate, the agony of death between two thieves, and then the bleakness of a borrowed tomb before the glory of Easter Day and his resurrection. And it all starts here, today. Let's hear what Victoria is going to share with us from our reading from Luke's Gospel. The reading comes from Luke 19, verses 28 to 48. Jesus comes to Jerusalem as king. After Jesus had said this, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. As he approached Bethphage and Bethany at the hill called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? Say, the Lord needs it. Those who were sent ahead went and found it just as he had told them. As they were untying the colt, its owners asked them, why are you untying the colt? They replied, the Lord needs it. They brought it to Jesus, threw their cloaks on the colt and put Jesus on it. As he went along, people spread their cloaks on the road. When he came near the place where the road goes down to the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they had seen. Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, rebel. Rebuke your disciples. I tell you, he replied, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. As he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it and said, If you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now, It is hidden from your eyes. The days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. They will dash you to the ground, you and the children within your walls. They will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. Jesus at the temple. When Jesus entered the temple courts, he began to drive out those who were selling. It is written, he said to them, my house will be a house of prayer. But you have made it a den of robbers. 
Every day, he was teaching at the temple. But the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the leaders among the people were trying to kill him. Yet they could not find any way to do it because all the people hung on his words. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks be to God. <clears throat> Thanks be to Victoria for reading it to us. Quick word of prayer. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, for this week that we are about to enter. And as we study your word, Lord, we pray that we would uh, reflect on it, that you would encourage us by it, but also that you would challenge us too. Help us, Lord, not to leave this place in the same way that we've entered it, but more determined to serve you out there in the world. Amen. Nearly 200 years ago, just a year after she succeeded to the throne at the age of 18, the coronation of Queen Victoria took place on the 28th of June, 1838. The railways made it easier for an estimated 400,000 people to come to London from around the country and indeed from around the empire. The procession to and from the ceremony at Westminster Abbey was witnessed by huge crowds waving Union Jacks. Victoria was crowned with a new imperial state crown made up of 3,093 gems, including the Black Prince's ruby. The cross at the top was set with a stone known as St. Edward's Sapphire, a sapphire taken from the ring or the coronet of Edward the Confessor. And as she rode in glory through the streets, the crowd strained to get sight of the beautiful princess, shortly to become queen of an empire which stretched around the world and on which the sun never set. Just under 80 years ago, on a humid August day, six continents and 49 countries were represented at an event even more spectacular. Hundreds of thousands wearing or waving dozens of different flags. But the most obvious, most conspicuous flag that day was by far the swastika, it was draped anywhere and everywhere there was room. And in this, the opening day of the 1936 Berlin Olympics, the main attraction was not the athletes who would compete for the medals, but for the one who would preside over these events, Adolf Hitler. At 3.18 in the afternoon, Hitler left the Chancellery in central Berlin, standing upright in his Mercedes limousine, his right arm lifted in the Nazi salute. Tens of thousands of Hitler youth, stormtroopers and military lined his route from the Brandenburg Gate through the Tiergarten and out to the Olympic Stadium. Massed along the way were hundreds of thousands of ordinary German citizens. They leant out of windows or stood 12 or more deep along the streets, all waving their flags. And as the limousine passed, they extended their right arms in the Nazi salute, their faces upturned, ecstatic, screaming in pulsating waves as he rode by. Hail Hitler! Hail Hitler! Hail Hitler! At the stadium, the athletes began to hear the distant sound of the crowds cheering, the noise slowly swelling and growing nearer, the loudspeakers blaring the messianic overtones. He is coming. He is coming. He is coming. Over the next decade, Hitler would rule over most of Europe 
and, and North Africa and bring about the deaths of tens of millions before the city where he ruled was itself destroyed with hardly one stone left on top of another. Over 2,000 years ago, on that first Palm Sunday, Jesus wasn't the only person heading into town. In 30 AD, Roman historians record that the governor of Judea, Pontius Pilate, led a procession of Roman cavalry and centurions into Jerusalem from the western side of the city, the opposite side from where Jesus would enter. It was the beginning of Passover, the Jewish festival that celebrated liberation from another empire, the empire of Egypt. It was standard practice for the Roman governor of a foreign territory to be in their capital for religious celebrations. And since the Romans had occupied Judea and the surrounding region by defeating the Jews and disposing, deposing their king about 80 years beforehand, uprisings and rebellion was always in the air. The last one had been after the death of Herod the Great in 4 BC. It started in Sepphoris, the capital of Galilee, about five miles from Jesus' boyhood home in Nazareth. And before it was over, Sepphoris and the town of Emmaus had been destroyed. Having put down the rebellion, the Roman army marched onto Jerusalem and after pacifying the city, crucified about 2,000 Jews who were accused of being a part of the rebellion. And Pilate was determined that there would be no repeat of such events. So he travelled with a contingent of soldiers from his home and his preferred headquarters by the sea in Caesarea to the stuffy and crowded city of Jerusalem. The Jewish temple would be the centre of the Passover activity and the Antonia fortress adjacent to the temple compound would serve as a good vantage point from which to keep an eye on the events as they unfurled. His procession was in the Roman style, drummers beating out the cadence of march to the soldiers on foot and on horseback, each clad in leather armour polished to a high gloss. Swords were sheathed in scabbards, in their hands were spears, or if archers, a bow with a sling of arrows across their backs. The helmets of each centurion's head gleamed in the bright sunlight, and Pilate himself was perched atop a majestic stallion, his procession proclaiming his and Rome's superiority. For Pilate served a son of God too. The late Emperor Augustus, who ruled from 31 BC to 14 AD, was said to have been fathered by the god Apollo and conceived by his mother, Attia. Inscriptions referred to him as the son of a son of God, Lord and even Saviour. And after his death, legend had it that he was seen ascending into heaven to take his place amongst the gods. Augustus' successors, Tiberius, during Jesus' life, also bore divine titles. And later in the first century, emperors would demand not only to be addressed as God, but to be worshipped as a God. And like Victoria's and Hitler's processions, Pilate's entry was meant as a show of military might and strength. His intent was to send a clear message to all of those gathering in Jerusalem and particularly to those who might be plotting against the empire of Rome. Think twice before joining any rebellion. Keep the peace or we will control you by force. 
Jesus' procession, on the other hand, was meant to show the exact opposite. Whether or not his entry in Jerusalem did occur on the exact same day as Pilate's procession, there was an unmistakable contrast between kings and kingdoms on display that day. And those who watched the events had a choice to make. Either bow down and serve the might and power of a god of this world, or choose to serve the king of a very different kind of kingdom. Rome's rule asserted the power and might of an empire which crushes all who oppose it. The rule of Jesus asserts something very different. Not for him a stallion or a royal carriage or an open-topped Mercedes or even the ancient world's equivalent, a chariot. Jesus, the Messiah, the Messiah King, enters not on a steed of war but humbly on a slow-moving donkey, the symbol of a king who comes in peace to save, not to oppress, to serve, not to be served. Christ's power will ultimately crush everything that Pilate stood for. But in the meantime, by declaring that the temple would be destroyed with not one stone left on another, he alienated those who made their living from it along with the money changers and those selling sacrificial animals at exorbitant prices, the chief priests, the Pharisees, the Sadducees and others who ruled on Rome's behalf were effectively part of Pilate's system of oppression and domination. And fearful that Jesus' entry into Jerusalem during Passover was going to lead to Rome coming down hard and fast on the entire nation and that they would lose all their prestige and their power, they decided it was far better to sacrifice the Christ, which they immediately set out to do. Betrayed by Judas, arrested by the high priest's guard, accused by a coalition of religious leaders, Jesus is to be handed over to be tried by Pontius Pilate, the Roman governor, who will sentence him to be crucified. Now, like Judas, Many of the others caught up in this triumphal entry probably think that they are following Jesus. But the reality is that most were doing so because they thought that Jesus would deliver them from the oppressive regime, the oppressive system under which they lived and worked, and turn the tables on the Romans and their religious leaders. In proclaiming, Hosanna to the Son of David, They were placing their faith in a Jesus that they hoped would fulfill the Old Testament prophecies that the coming Messiah would sit on David's throne, ridding the nation of its oppressors and bringing back the glory of Israel. But by the end of the week, they will realize that he isn't going to do any of those things. And disappointed, they will turn on him. When Pilate offers them a choice between King Jesus and Barabbas, a known rebel and an insurgent, they declare that they have no king but Caesar and they demand that Barabbas is to be released and Jesus be crucified. In their disappointment, even his closest followers will either betray him outright or abandon him in confusion and fear. So what does all this mean for us today? 
As we read through the Easter story, I think we have to ask ourselves some questions. What was the offense of Jesus? To whom did he do any harm? What was wrong with his miracles, his teaching, his acts of kindness? He does good things. He heals the sick. He preaches forgiveness. He teaches about the kingdom of God. And then we look at the Pharisees and the scribes. Look at their bitterness and their hatred, their scorn, their derision. We look at Pilate and the Roman authorities. And alongside them, we look at the common people baying for his death. We see their hatred, sense their scorn, smell their fear. Jesus is an innocent man. Nobody can bring any evidence of any criminality against him. The Jewish leaders can't. And after the preliminary hearing, Pilate declares that he can find no basis for any charge. And neither can Herod, who sends him back to Pilate, who then washes his hands of the whole affair, declaring that he is innocent of this innocent man's blood. So what on earth is going on here? Jesus says that the people don't know. They don't understand what they are up to. Forgive them, Father, he will say on the cross, for they know not what they do. And the reality is that they don't. But he did. He knew exactly what was going on. Having resisted Satan's temptations in the wilderness to seek earthly power and glory, having resisted the temptation to be persuaded by his closest friends, especially Peter, to stay well away from Jerusalem, and having resisted the temptation to allow the crowds to proclaim him an earthly king, he declares that this is the time. This is the place. This is the hour. A new kingdom is to be established, and he resolutely heads into town and to the cross in order to establish it. The cross is not something that happened to Jesus. He was not some sort of martyr. The road that Jesus took on this earth was always going to lead to a Calvary where he would win victory over sin. It is finished, says Jesus. It is accomplished. The Pharisees and the scribes hoped that he was finished. But Jesus did not say, I am finished. He said, it is finished. The work of atonement was finished. The sacrifice for sin was finished. The plan of salvation was finished. Sin, death, hell, the grave, all finished. They remained and remains no more sacrifice necessary for sin. All that was necessary for us to be saved was finished on the cross. Christ, who knew no sin, became sin for us. That's why salvation is Jesus plus nothing. It's not Jesus plus works. It's not Jesus plus baptism. It's not Jesus plus attending church on a Sunday. It's not Jesus plus ritual. Salvation is by faith in Christ and is in Christ alone. The reason salvation is so easy to obtain is that it costs God so much. Grace wiped the slate clean. And then in the culmination of this Easter week, God reaches, 
God the creator reaches into the darkness of the tomb and rescues Jesus. A gospel without the resurrection is merely a gospel without a final chapter. If like Jesus Christ superstar, everything stops at the crucifixion, then it's not a gospel at all. There is no good news. But there is good news. Those of us who have accepted Christ can be confident that the grave is not the end. Fear not, he declares, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died and behold, I am alive forevermore and I hold the keys of death and hell. A new kingdom has been established. And those who witnessed the events in Jerusalem that week had a choice to make. And so do we. Either we bow down and serve the might and power of the gods of this world, or we choose to serve the king of this new kingdom, the kingdom of God. So let me ask you a couple of questions that I asked myself as I put this sermon together. Would you have gazed in awe and wonder as Victoria headed into Westminster to be crowned and rested secure in the knowledge that you were a part of the greatest empire that the world had ever seen? Would you have raised your arm in salute to Hitler as he passed by on his way to the Olympic Stadium? And would you have bowed down to his rule? And which procession would you have chosen to follow if you'd been in Jerusalem on that Palm Sunday? Pilots or Jesus? Different processions, but two theologies, two choices. Do you choose power and might over love? Choose the way that things are done over the way that God intends them to be done? Which would you choose? What kind of king would you have welcomed? Now, it's easy to say that we would have chosen Christ. But the reality is that we are under pressure to make a different choice every single day. Our lives are dominated by political power, economic power, military power. That's what we see being continually exercised all around us, whether here in the UK or in places around the world like the Ukraine. There are powerful people in the world around us using their power to intimidate, to threaten, to terrorize. That's just the way it is. That's all that matters. And we have no choice but to conform, to go along with it. But is it? Must we? In AD 70, the Roman general Titus destroyed the city into which Jerusalem, um, into which Jesus entered that first Palm Sunday. Titus's triumph with the spoils from the Jerusalem temple is depicted on a monument that remains in Rome to this day. But Rome's empire fell, as do all earthly empires. All the great empires that seemed invincible at the time, Egypt, Babylon, Persia, ancient Greece and Rome, all the way through to Nazi Germany and the Soviet Union, all have crumbled and fallen. The Third Reich was going to last for a thousand years. It survived for 12. 
communism was going to flourish to the end of history. It lasted but 70 years. And in the end, the sun set on even the British Empire. Christ's empire has survived for over 2,000 years, and it will never fall. This passage from Revelations, chapter 7. After this I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count, from every nation, every tribe, people and language, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. And they were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands. And they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the Lamb, on the throne, and to the Lamb. The story is told that during the darkest days of communism in Eastern Europe, on one Easter Sunday, the political commissariat harangued the people for an hour or so on the virtues of communism. In response, a Christian preacher simply stood up and declared, Christ has risen. The people rose as one to declare he is risen indeed. Hallelujah. In the end, that truth destroyed communism as it destroys all evil and all false earthly power. Corrie ten Boom was once asked, if she found it difficult to remain humble. Her reply was simple. When Jesus rode into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday on the back of a donkey and everyone was waving palm branches and throwing garments onto the road and singing praises, do you think that for one moment it ever entered the head of that donkey that any of that was for him? She continued, if I can be the donkey on which Jesus Christ rides in glory, then I will be giving him all the praise and the honor. She chose her kingdom. And that seems about right to me. That's my choice. What's yours? Amen.